Good day and welcome to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. I say good day because I figure that's probably safe. I could say good evening and cover my bases. Good afternoon and good morning. Let's just do it that way. Cover all my bases at once. Um, it's uh, 4.20 a.m. here in central Pennsylvania. I am definitely a morning person, although this is a little bit too early even for me. But I get to a point where if I wake up late enough, uh, not late enough, but early enough in the morning, I can't fall asleep, uh, back asleep. Because uh, I'm just interested in getting up and uh, doing some reading and doing some thinking and drinking some coffee. Uh, so if I wake up at like 4 o'clock, I'm up. That's just the way it goes, even though I'd prefer to sleep in to about 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30, something like that. But I have uh, people from all over the world that listen to this, so I know many you're not necessarily listening right after I post it, so it can be any time during the day or night <clears throat> that you listen to it. <laughs> I listen to a guy's podcast that I like. I wouldn't listen to it if I didn't like it, uh, but it's a flawed podcast. Uh, he's interested in the topic, and he does a decent job, but he doesn't do a great job, uh, and, he, and he's a bit too uh, complimentary towards himself, but I do listen to it at times to put me asleep. <laughs> I, I find him, uh, oh, let's just leave it at that. But I do like listening to it for the topic, too. And he does a good job. He doesn't do a great job. does a good job. And so I'm not going to totally diss the guy. Anyway, today, chapter 13, page 184, and purity of heart is the well one thing. Uh, what then must I do? Live as an individual. Now, I could see a critic of Soren, either back in the day when this was first published, or now, or somewhere in between, Oh, Soren Kierkegaard, you're back talking about the solitary individual. Man, when will you when will you just move on? <laughs> and this is a very common theme, not just in this book, but it's a theme throughout all of his books. Is Soren is adamant that each person exists as an independent being, not in the herd, not in the crowd, uh, primarily, but first as an individual. And... Uh, I was walking through the town of Columbia the other night after uh, drinking some beers with some uh, ex-co-workers and some co-workers at a local brewery called Starview, who is owned, which is owned by that buddy of mine. And uh, Columbia is an old town. It's been around since uh, the mid-18th um, century, 1700s. And uh, <clears throat> it has some old architecture, uh, not entirely, of course, but it has some stuff that goes back. Uh, but there's a lot of craftsmen type of work in town, a lot of brickwork, a lot of uh, buildings that were constructed to be very individualistic. And uh, I, I love bricks. I love the intentionality of bricks that you have to put bricks down one at a time. You can't just put a big wall of brick up at, uh, at one whole big wall at once. You have to you know, put each brick down with the mortar and contain. And, so, and it's a skill, of course, and there's a lot of things that people can't do these days. Um, but I, I like the intentionality of each brick kind of exists by itself and brickwork along sidewalks or buildings or something like that, or bridges. It's just cool to me. I love it. Now people aren't bricks, uh, but we are what the Bible calls living stones and God is putting us together into a community of believers. And I don't think that's necessarily a physical building. It can be just like a school is not necessarily, um, the building itself, it's the students in the building, it's the staff in the building that make the school. And if you don't doubt me, go to a school in the summer when nobody's there. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing there. 
despite the the facility and the options it has and all the different types of equipment the the building without students and without staff is an empty building and there's nothing there that's not really the school the school is the people that exist within it uh, so we're not bricks we're not the, like these all look the same and same dimensions we're stones you know we're living stones the bible calls us living stones which means we have feelings and we have eternity in our hearts and all that kind of stuff but God puts us together into a community. And I do really, oh man, I say how much I appreciate people reaching out and giving me a word of encouragement because it goes both ways. Uh, people uh, post things uh, on reviews, either in Spotify, maybe, I don't know. I haven't looked that closely on Spotify, but Apple for sure, uh, the Apple podcast uh, platform, and maybe some other places. And I certainly take a lot of hits on social media because of my... Christian beliefs. Uh, I don't think it's because I'm being obnoxious about it. I just think people can't stand the idea of God having authority over them. Um, so I take a lot of I take a lot of punishment. I guess that's the way I would say it. So a good word, an encouraging word, and you guys know who you are. I won't call you out by name. Uh, I, I, you know, I appreciate doing that sometimes because some people uh, have gone out of the way to be exceedingly kind to me. So I will draw attention to them. Uh, and I'm not begging for it. I don't like false praise. I think there's praise inflation in the world. So people are certainly allowed to criticize me. But I can see Soren being criticized. Oh, he's talking about the same subject again. And it's the same thing he talked about in Bird of the Air, Lily of the Field and Bird of the Air. This guy just doesn't get off this individualistic thing. So why is this? Soren wants us to have a very active um, faith life. He doesn't want us to depend on our family or our church, or our school, to be who we are. We should stand by ourselves, but stand in a crowd. You know, like the, But the, that individualism is so important, just like a brick wall. Um, we are God's handiwork. So I'm going to get right into the book here. Um, chapter 13, page 184. We're about 30 podcasts into this, uh, into this book, uh, starting you know, approximately 30 podcasts ago. And it's page 184 which works out to be about six pages a day that we're covering. And it's very unusual for me not to cite something from a specific page. You can tell by the amount of circles and underlines and notes that I have in these books. Uh, my, my goal with the Soren Kierkegaard Library that I have is that um, I will read the books and it will be very obvious that I read the books when I die and people look through them if they just don't put them in a dumpster. Um, that they will show that they were, they were, they were dealt with. Uh, the underlining and the circling and the notes show that I was very uh, intense in terms of processing, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a food, you know, consumed sword, and he made my soul better. Okay, so chapter thirteen: What then must I do? Live as an individual, <clears throat> and that six pages can go up or down on a given day for sure. I give an episode. The talk asks you then whether you live in such a way that you are conscious of being an individual. So he puts that in quotes. It's such an important issue for Soren. The question is not of the inquisitive sort, as if one asked you about that individual in some special sense, about the one whom admiration and envy and unite in uh, pointing out. No, it is a serious question <clears throat> of what each man <clears throat> really is according to his eternal vocation so that he himself shall be conscious that he is following it, and what is even more serious to ask, as if he were considering his life before God. Uh, so that would be an irrelevant question for many people in our world. Uh, but to Soren, 
Uh, he's really kind of ending his book on a crescendo. Now, we still have pages to go here, but he's coming towards his, his apex of what his major point is. So to ask it as if he were considering his life before God. So to Sorn, that is a key, key question that must be answered. And we got into that last week with uh, God being in the audience of a, of a performance. Our life is a performance, a real performance, not a fictional performance, a real performance. The consciousness is the fundamental condition, condition for <laughs> truthfully willing only one thing. For he who is not himself, and unity is never really anything holy and decisively. He only exists in an ex- external sense as long as he lives as a numeral within the crowd, a fraction within the earthly conglomeration. Alas, how indeed should such a one decide to busy himself with the thought, truthfully to will only one thing? Indeed, it is precisely uh, this consciousness that must be asked for, just as if the talk could not, not ask in generalities, but rather ask you as an individual, or better still, my listener, uh, remember Soren wants us to read this aloud, if you would ask yourself whether you have this consciousness, whether you are actively contemplating the occasion of this talk, for in the outside world the crowd is busy making a noise, uh, the one making makes noise because he heads the crowd, the many because they are members of the crowd, but the all-knowing one, who in spite of anyone is able to observe it all, does not desire the crowd. He desires the individual. He will deal only with the individual, uh, quite unconcerned as to whether the individual be of high or low station, whether he be distinguished or wretched. Each man himself, as an individual, should render his account to God. No third person dares to intrude upon this accounting between God and the individual. Time for a little coffee break here. Oh, it's so delicious. Mm. Yet the talk by putting in question, again, if you're a coffee uh, distributor, coffee roaster, or coffee company, coffee grower, and you want to sponsor my podcast, man, reach out to me on Twitter, reach out to me on Instagram, reach out to me on Facebook. (laughs) There's very few things that I would allow to sponsor this, but if it's coffee and I enjoy the coffee and it's ethically produced, grown and produced and sold, uh, you got my business. I will promote the heck out of you on this uh, podcast. Yet the talk, by putting its question, dares and ought to dare to remind man in a way never to be forgotten that the most ruinous, ruinous, ruinous evasion of all is to be hidden in the crowd in an attempt to escape God's supervision of him as an individual, in an attempt to get away from hearing God's voice as an individual. Long ago, Adam attempted the same thing when his evil conscience led him to imagine that he could hide himself among the trees. It may even be easier and more convenient and more cowardly to hide oneself among the crowd in the hope that God should not be able to recognize one from the other. But in eternity, uh, each shall render account as an individual. That is, eternity will demand of him that he shall live as an individual. Eternity will draw out before his consciousness. 
I'm trying not to be quite so vociferous when I blow my nose. <laughs> Again, if somebody were to criticize me for blowing my nose or whatever on my podcast, I'm like, this is just the way, <laughs> just the way it is, man. If you don't like it, go, leave, find something else to occupy your time. You don't have to be here. I'm not your counselor. You're not assigned to me. Uh, if you want something else. You want somebody else doing the soaring, go out and find it if it's out there. Or read the books yourself. If my uh, blowing of nose irritates you. Eternity will draw out before his consciousness. I'm not saying you should enjoy the blowing of nose. Just be a patient and forbear. That's all I'm saying. Eternity will draw out before his consciousness all that he has done as an individual. He who had forgotten himself in noisy self-conceit. In eternity, he shall be brought into account strictly as an individual, he who attended to be in the crowd, where there should be no such strict reckoning. Each one shall render account to God as an individual, the king shall render account as an individual, and the most wretched beggar as an individual. No one may pride himself at being more than an individual, and no one despondently think that he is not an individual, perhaps, because here... In Earth's busyness, he had not found as much as a name, but was named after a number. For after all, who, what is eternity's accounting other than the voice of conscience is forever installed with its eternal right to be the exclusive voice? What is it? Uh, what is other than than throughout than that throughout eternity an infinite stillness reigns? Whereas the conscience may talk uh, with the individual about what he is as an individual of what he has done of good or of evil. Um, it's interesting that good is uh, capitalized and evil is not. It's a smaller, uh, it's the smaller case of evil. And that makes sense. C.S. Lewis made a comment in one of his books, probably mere Christianity, but I could be wrong somewhere. Uh, that the opposite of God is, is not the devil. The devil is, is a fallen angel. So the opposite of the devil is an angel that did not fall, like Michael or Gabriel. So there are, there are archangels in the Bible who um, protect people. Um, they're called archangels. And uh, the Bible says that they play an active role in the world. We don't see them, uh, but they uh, are protective um, and then there's fallen angels, which Lucifer is a fallen angel. Uh, so the demons uh, and the devil, the devil with a capital D, because uh, that's a proper name for him, um, is not God's uh, equal. And that's what the sin was. That what the, the fallenness was, is that uh, the, the Lucifer wanted to be equal to God. And uh, people want to be gods. So we make poor gods. We make pretty good devils, though, if we put our mind to it. Was it uh, other than within eternity, there's infinite space, so that each person as individual is apart with his conscience. For in eternity, there is no mob, pressure, no crowd, no hiding place in the crowd as little as there are riots or street fights. I don't know if Copenhagen was a, a rowdy place or not. A college town or something. Friday night. Friday night brawls. We always talked about in school that, man, you get two boys in a fight. 
that was something that you could usually break up pretty easily. But two girls in a fight, mm-mm-mm. There was something driving that fight that was deep, that was not going to go away. And, man, they'd be pulling hair and all kinds of stuff. Here in the Temple Order, conscience is prepared to make each person into an individual. But here in the Temporal Order, and the unrest and the noise and the pressure of the mob and the crowd and the primeval forest of evasion. That's a good term, the primeval forest of evasion. Alas, it is true, the calamity still happens, that someone completely stifles the voice of his conscience. His conscience, for he can never rid himself of it. Uh, it continues to belong to him, or miraculously, he continues to belong to it. Yet we are not now talking about this calamity, for even among the better persons it happens all too readily that the voice of conscience becomes merely one voice among many. <clears throat> then it follows so easily that the isolated voice of conscience, as generally happens to a solitary one, becomes overruled by the majority. But in eternity, conscience is only the only voice that is heard. <clears throat> so I had a roommate in college who used to uh, seduce girls, women. <clears throat> young women and the way he would do it he would pretend like he was in love and you know all forever and la-di-da and do all the things that would send the girl to sign that he was committed but it, all it was was a sham <laughs> the sham it was a technique and a strategy to get the girl in bed and to sleep with him and uh, i asked him one time i won't use his name here but i said blank uh doesn't it bother you that you use use women? That you just um, tell them what they want to hear and seduce them and have have sex with them and then leave them to leave them alone and hurt when you just walk away and do it to the next person? So I said, "Don't you have a conscience?" And he said, "Yeah, I used to have one of those, but I gave up on it." And I felt like I was talking to the devil right there. <clears throat> the dude later blew up my stereo and denied it. He turned it on too loud when I wasn't there one time and totally destroyed it. And one of his friends uh, ratted him out accidentally, but he never admitted it. He just lied to my face. I couldn't prove it, but I'm just like, you're such a, you're such a piece of, you know what? <laughs> I'm like, whatever. You, you, you just suck, man. So anyway, but eternity conscience is the only voice that is heard. But I worried for him. I really did. Because once he gave up on his conscience, I'm like, this dude is doomed. And I'm not going to get into his story, but it ended tragically. But he was doomed. Um, you give up on your conscience, you're, you're, already halfway, you're already halfway to hell. And uh, it doesn't take much to get you to go the rest of the way. Because you've already given up the most protective element, the voice that is telling you not to act a certain way and do certain things and believe certain things. You give up on that. It's like taking out the smoke detectors in your house or something. It must be heard by the individual, for the individual has become the eternal echo of this voice. It must be heard. There's no place to flee from it. For the infinite, there is no place. The individual is himself the place. It must be heard in vain. The individual looks about for the crowd. Alas, it as if there were a world between him and the nearest individual whose conscience is also speaking to him about what he as an individual, individual has spoken and done. Uh, and thought of good and of evil. <clears throat> One of the difficult things about reading is it gets a it gets a bit hard to do, you know, without just taking a break, making sure that I breathe, and uh, of course get the uh, get the uh, coffee, the essential coffee into the mouth for sure. Um, so just let me take a little break here, a little time out.
I'm drinking a Pete's coffee today. It's a delicious Ethiopian. Uh, Pete's tends to roast their beans a little bit darker than some, which I'm not a huge fan of in some ways, but I've come to appreciate it. Uh, darker roast tends to hide the more floral and aromatic notes of coffee. It tends to burn those things out. Mm. But the uh, roasting also helps make it richer. Uh, there's a fine line there that you can cross to what's called the second crack of a coffee bean. And if you go there, that's what Starbucks does. If you go there, the uh, coffee's been basically charred. And Starbucks does it because they have a lot of low-quality low coffee, even though it's Arabica. Starbucks has to make money with their retail operations and how they sell their coffee. So I think they buy low-grade beans, and they just roast the crap out of them uh, to even out the taste, but to make it that charred uh, taste and uh, all the individuality of the coffee is burned out. And that's what the crowd does to you. If you hang out with the crowd long enough, <laughs> it will char you. <laughs> It will char you. Your individuality, your aroma, your distinctiveness will get burned out of the system. Do you now live uh, that sh that you are uh, are conscious of yourself as an individual? That e in each of your relations in which you come into touch with the outside world, you as uh, conscious of yourself. And that at the same time, you're related to yourself as an individual, even in these relations, which men so beautifully style the most intimate of all. Do you remember that you have still a more intimate relation, namely that in which you as an individual are related to yourself before God? So he talks about matrimony here and being a good husband and how it's important, but it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't rank ahead of your relationship with God. Uh, if you put relationships with people ahead of God, the things are always going to be messed up. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not going to read all this about the family stuff. You can if you want, if you have the same edition I do. It's on page 187, 188. It's not to say it's not um, it's not uh, worth reading, uh, but it's just kind of some family things. I think it's insightful. Don't get me wrong. Um, so he gets into matrimony and having children and caring for children and all those things. And uh, But you have the responsibility before God that's even even outweighs that. <clears throat> but in eternity, you are uh, the individual and conscience when it talks to you. is no third person anymore that you are a third person when you talk with conscience. For you and conscience are one. It knows all that you know, and it knows that you know it. With respect to your children's upbringing, you can weigh various matters with your wife or your friends, but how you act and the responsibility for it is finally and wholly and solely yours as an individual. And if you fail to act, hiding from yourself and from others behind a screen of deliberation, you bring down the responsibility solely upon yourself as an individual. Yes, in the temple order, where in all directions, both this and our and that are asked about in the manifold complex complications of their reciprocal action, there one may rightly, there one may rightly enough believe that it was a fantasy of the imagination, a chimera, that each one among the, these countless millions of people should be convinced accurately down to the least trifle of what his life consisted. But in eternity, this is possible because each becomes an individual. <clears throat> this applies to every relation of your life. If you do not live in some out-of-the-way place in your world, in the world, if you live in a populous city and you direct your attention outwards sympathetically, engrossing yourself in the people and in what is going on, 
Do you remember each time you throw yourself in this way into the world around you that in this relation you relate yourself to yourself as an individual with eternal responsibility? Or do you press yourself into the crowd where the one excuses himself with the others? Excuse me. Again, I could do this podcast later, uh, but this vibe of doing in the morning, early morning, I really like. We're chugging along here. I don't know if it's uh, worth trying to crush the rest of the chapter today. I thought maybe I could get through it all. Uh, but let me uh, let me see. We're at 24 minutes here. Do you judge like the crowd in its capacity as a crowd? You are not obliged to have an opinion about what you do not understand. Now, I would say this is super, super important. Is that there's things that we know because we spent time learning it. It's like the 10,000 hour idea that Mal- Malcolm Gladwell, I think it's 10,000 hours, uh, which is like the idea of mastery. Like you have to spend 10,000 hours doing something. Like if you're going to be an expert on Soren Kierkegaard, you have to read him for 10,000 hours, uh, probably. That's probably the best way of doing it. Or playing the guitar. You know, assuming you have some natural aptitude for it. Or whatever. It takes 10,000 hours to become a master of something. And one of the issues today, which is really different than when I was a kid, is that when I was a child, when I was young and a teenager, we didn't have access to the internet, of course. It didn't exist. Now, we had technology that blew the minds of the older generation, like telephones or, you know, whatever, whatever it was, uh, VCRs. There, you know, technology is tricky because the existing generation can always remember what it was like not to have it if they're old enough. Like, that's my generation, right? So, with, like, all this digital ability to access information at the, at the click of a button or typing in something on the keyboard... Or pulling up four million songs on my uh, on my Apple Music account and just listening to it like it's been a tremendous blessing. But in the old days, if you wanted to uh, listen to a specific song, this is what we had to do. Believe it or not, if you didn't have a copy of the album or it on a tape, you know, one of those cassette tapes, uh, you had to call a radio station. I remember doing this and saying, "Can you play such and such a song?" And the person would say, "I'll try to get to it," and hang up. And the person answering the phones, the DJ or whatever. And then you would listen to the radio for the next three hours to see if they played this song. <laughs> That's what it was back in the day, right? But these days, people can have an opinion so quickly because they can um, access information. Whereas, you know, I had to go into a library and I had to pull out like some microfiche or uh, something like that. And I swore in my doctoral program at Temple that I would never have to, I would avoid uh, 100% if I could. Um, any research that I had to dig out by hand that was in a paper stack somewhere or on film, like microfiche or microfilm or something like that. And I got through it almost 99.9% except one time in one of these classes that I had, the professor said, I think you need to read such and such an article. It didn't exist digitally, which was really unusual. And I had to go dig it out. It took me like two hours. And I read the article. I'm like, why did I have to read this? I already knew this. Like, what, what's the deal? So back when we were kids, we had to go to the library, the Encyclopedia Britannica, or uh, talk to the librarian, or get a bunch of books out. It was very hands-on. took a lot of time. And those resources were curated, and that's both good and bad, because the curation 
probably made it more credible in a lot of ways because it was expensive to publish books and articles. Uh, so you're not going to just have some know-it-all, uh, just whip something out and print it up and, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars later. Um, so we were always in a dearth of trying to get information and materials. That was a very common feeling, and I felt it as a kid. I felt it all the time, like if I could just get the information, maybe I could do something about this. Maybe I could build something, because I wasn't very mechanical, but I wanted to learn how to build stuff. Or maybe I could learn something. But we just didn't have instant access. So the difference now is any Tom, Dick, or Harry, or Jane, or whatever, can uh, can weigh in on something that they know very little about. And sometimes ignorance is dangerous because ignorance um, creates a situation that a person thinks they know more than they do. And this is a trait of the young. Now, we all remember being teenagers and young adults, and we thought that our parents were dummies and teachers were goofs and... Not all of them, but you know, a large majority of them we didn't have a lot of respect for, and we liked to con them and lie to them and get away with it. And I was the average kind of kid doing that, to my hurt often. Uh, but these days, any any person with a phone can t punch in a term into Google or somewhere and get you know what appear to be fairly credible answers to something, but they don't really know much about it themselves. They haven't taken the time to learn. So we have a lot of critics and we don't have a lot of creators or the creative like capacity doesn't take a lot of effort. Like it's somebody just like doing like a little dance move. Like good for you. Like that probably took you two minutes to learn, but it's not the reciting like great poetry or, um, you know, performing a piece of Chopin or something. You know, they're just acting like a goofball and now they can put it out to hundreds and thousands of people. And one of the dangerous things about where we are at right now is we have a lot of people who have very powerful weapons in their hands, but they don't know how to use them. Again, it's a trait of the young to some extent, but not entirely because we have plenty of adults that act like ding-dongs. And I've gotten to a point right now that if somebody's insulting, if I'm having a conversation online with somebody that I either know or don't know, and it's about a topic that maybe has a very various opinions on, where I feel strongly about my position, I thought about it, and the person calls me a clown or puts that little clown emoji on there, they're done. I'm just going to block them. I've, I've gotten past the point, once somebody is insulting and abusive, um, of dialoguing with them. I'm just going to block them. And this is like what Jesus did when he, you know, until he was crucified, which he had to do that for redemption's purposes. Jesus was very, very intentional about the crucifixion. He was the Passover lamb that died for our sins. So ultimately, that was his purpose of coming to the world. <clears throat> was to bear testimony of the truth and to sacrifice for sinners on the cross and pay pay that account. But there's a lot of other instances in the Bible where Jesus um, walked away from crowds or walked through crowds or didn't answer people and walked away. And that is a huge um, spiritual discipline because we all want to feed into the into the churn and into the chaos. We want we want to dish it back out. We want to be just as insulting and just as abusive as someone else. And um, I think this is a really good insight from Soren here. Do you judge like the crowd in its capacity as a crowd? You are not obliged to have an opinion about what you do not understand. So, again, ignorance doesn't help people with this because an ignorant person thinks they know more than they do. That's like the definition of ignorance. It's Socrates, you know, the wisest man in Athens. Why? Because he knew nothing. And that's a little bit of an overstatement. But the general gist is that Socrates, who was a wise individual 
understood that there was a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom he didn't understand. Like the, the universe is a big place, you know, it's infinite almost. And uh, it's not infinite, but it's infinite to our minds. And just for somebody to think they've, they've mastered knowledge, even as it existed in, in, uh, in, in Athens and the, you know, in the, in the ancient of days, it's so arrogant to believe that we have any knowledge uh, capacity that exceeds what is known. Like it, like there's so much more to know. And that's one of the things that as you get older, you can learn, you can learn a lot just by listening. You learn a lot just by picking up a book and we're never at the point that we have it figured out. We might become a master relative to someone else, but it doesn't mean that we're a master compared to God or compared to the amount of knowledge that exists in that category. So our social media really, really caters to know-it-alls. People, and this happens a lot with kids, that they, and this happened at school one time. I just remembered a kid who was relatively bright, who was a smart kid. Uh, and I had a good relationship with him in general. But, you know, most kids have a dark side, uh, just like all of us. And it can come out in different ways, and they can hide it sometimes. You don't know the kids super well always. <clears throat> but we uh, had this thing at the uh, high school, which was mandated by the state of Pennsylvania. It was the graduation requirements, uh, Chapter 339 regulations, and every student should have a career plan because it's it's not right that kids can gra graduate from high school and not have at least some idea of where they're headed after high school. And we acknowledge that, but it was a state requirement, graduation requirement for all, all public high schools in Pennsylvania. The graduation requirement must must be completed. Now, schools had some flexibility in terms of how to implement it, but there's these standards that we have to hit, like kids should know how to write a resume, they should know how to conduct a job interview, they should know how to do a job search, they should know what their aptitudes are, blah, blah, So they, you know, the state lines up a bunch of competencies that you have to know for this Chapter 339 uh, career readiness uh, portfolio. Um, but then they give you some flexibility in terms of the software that you use, the interventions and the tools and the assignments and all that kind of stuff. So anyway... This kid put on to Schoology, which was the social media of the high school. It's a, it's an application that schools use. It's like Facebook, but it's um it's a curated for high schools. It's curated for schools in general, not just high schools. But you post information about scholarships and questions the kids have, and blah blah blah. It's a way of communicating with the uh, digital generation in terms of responsibilities and deadlines and all that stuff. Well, this kid went off online and said that you know the guidance department was imposing the graduation. Uh, career readiness uh, senior project on, on the senior class like it was our idea that we just invented it out of nowhere and I thought it was a good idea don't get me wrong but this kid thought that it was guidance that had in, invented the idea and was forcing it upon the seniors like it was our idea to do this and that we were going to make the kids have to go through these steps right <laughs> he put this entirely on guidance when I was like I had to call him in and said listen man <laughs> You're blaming us for something that we're under the same responsibility you are. We have to do this. We don't have a choice. You're not allowed to graduate by the state who issues your diploma through the authority granted to the board of school directors. Um, this this graduation project, it's not, the senior project's not solely from guidance. I just didn't cook it up, or my colleagues and I just didn't cook it up one afternoon and decided to impose it upon you all. You know, and I had to call him out on it because he 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 really said he really thought that guidance had just invented this thing out of thin air. And I said, um, uh, no, it's not quite the case. And let me let me give you the opportunity to understand why it's not the case. Do you understand it's a state requirement? Do you understand the state requires us to do it? I, as a professional, must do this. 
That's because I think I think it's a good idea too. Don't get me wrong, but my job requires me to do this. So stop putting guidance as the sole authority here. We're not. Said so we're responsible to implement it. <laughs> That's true. I would like a little bit more help, by the way, uh, from the staff and from administration because they've put it on us almost entirely. And that's why this kid was perceiving it was a guidance function is because everybody just wanted guidance to do it. No, career development is a school-wide responsibility. Administration plays a role, parents play a role, students play a role, and teachers play a role. I think one way teachers can really empower the classroom is to implement a career component into a lesson in their, in their classroom. And it's amazing what you can do if you just take the time to think about, like, how does this knowledge apply to the job world and if a teacher can't do that in some capacity uh, maybe they need to be trained better maybe they need to think a little bit harder like you can like read a Shakespeare play and see all the the backbiting and all the treachery involved and that gives you a good idea of like office politics you know <laughs> something does not appear to be related at all it can be really put into the career realm very easily by somebody that has just a little bit of imagination so, regardless, I think I'm going to stop at that today. Um, you're not, do not, uh, do, <laughs> let me see if I can get this right. So, anyway, all I'm saying is that I'm going to make an appeal to you also here. I have like three minutes remaining. People are allowed to be critical of this podcast. I try to front load it in the description with the confession that I do do a lot of processing here. I put a lot of myself into this podcast. It's called Birkergaard. The writings of Soren Kierkegaard for a reason, because I am not just uh, just a, a, a reader or announcer here. I do a lot of talking about Soren, and I put it. I talk about myself to some degree, and sometimes more than I should. I admit that. I try to put it all out there in this description so people don't feel misled. Where I get most angry in life is where somebody doesn't tell me the terms of the conditions that I just committed to. They withhold information or not truthful about. Um, the engagement. They're, they're, they're trying to get me to buy into something where they haven't been honest about the terms, right? That really pisses me off. So I try in my description to be very, very open, and I suggest you read in an apple, you know, if you have any questions. And I added another additional piece to make it even clearer that I do put my personal life into this. Um, in order to have a successful podcast, you have to be different. You have to do it different than the crowd. It's the only thing that works these days. Um, so I have to do this, like it or not. And I get a lot more compliments for doing it the way I do it than criticism. But believe me, the criticism is out there. So I'm going to make an appeal to you. And I can't force you to do it, and I don't want you to feel compelled to do it. But if you like this podcast, remember, there's, there's, the, there's kind of the court of uh, public opinion out there. And I think one thing that Soren probably didn't do real well is he didn't enlist allies very, very well. He was so individualistic that he didn't understand that in the court of public opinion, if the truth is going to prevail, it's going to prevail. It's going to need defenders. Okay, and I'm not saying I'm always talking about the truth, or that I'm Jesus, or that I'm even Soren. I'm not. Okay, so people have an intrinsic right to criticize this podcast. I completely understand, and it's good that I can't respond to them because uh, it would not lead to productive things. <clears throat> the best defense, though, is somebody else coming into the equation that says, "Well, wait a minute. <clears throat> the thing that you hate about this podcast." It's actually one of the things I like about this podcast. It's one of the things I enjoy about it because it's not just the same thing. The person has an opinion. The person has a perspective. I might not even agree with it, but I appreciate it that the person puts it out there. 
So go into social, the social media platforms for podcasts so on the platforms themselves. And if you feel inclined to do so, don't just send me a personal note saying that you like it. Okay, I, I appreciate that. Believe me. And I've had some great conversations with people all across the world about the podcast. And I am grateful for that. Uh, but you need to also be in the public square a bit and cry out. There has to be wisdom on the streets. Um, and I don't want somebody to get biased by a really, really bad review when, in fact, it's maybe more mixed. You know, the, the, the good people are silent, but the critics are, they're just loudmouths. Um, because somebody might, and I, I deal a lot with people that are skeptics online, you know, Facebook and different groups and things like that. There's a lot of people with no hope out there. And if somebody, like, is looking to say, maybe this, this podcast could be useful, maybe it could give me some hope in my life because I'm, I'm despairing of it, you know. And somebody reads a really, really negative review that's not balanced by other feedback that should be there, and it's not because people just don't want to take a stand. Um, you know, that person is going to miss an opportunity, perhaps, to get some sunlight into their life. They're just going to live under clouds because nothing's broken through. Again, the critics have a right to do what they do. I might disagree with it. I might think they're full of, you know what, um, whatever. They they can do what they do, and they can do it for their own reasons. I uh, you know I I can't I can't extrapolate what the motivations are for some people. All I can say is the good people have to stand up, and that's what always protected me in the school. For every critic I had, and I had some, believe me, I had I had like four or five kids that would defend me, saying the thing that you don't like about him is what I love about him. He's not a BSer. He tells me the truth. He gives me a hand. Um, he's accurate. He's on top of it. He gets stuff done. He doesn't drag his feet. He's, he has integrity. You know, so some things that rub people the wrong way were actually the qualities that the majority of my students enjoyed about me. Now, initially, they might have felt I was a little rough around the edges or a little bit non-diplomatic or non-discreet. But nobody could ever question, number one, that I cared about the kids. Number two, I told them the truth. And number three, I would do whatever I could to help them be better, even if they messed up. I would never just totally throw them out, baby in the bathwater type of thing. And it was really interesting in my last year of school, towards the last month of my tenure as a high school counselor of 30 years, uh, this student came into me and was complaining about a teacher, saying this teacher's really, really hard. Uh, like he or she asks us to do all this stuff and says it's very, very demanding, just very demanding. And she said, the kids are getting sick of it in the classroom. And I dealt a lot with that in the school. Like, I had to let the kids just vent. And I would direct, I would direct the student back to the teacher. But they needed to vent sometimes. And that's, that was a safe place to do it. They knew I was gonna, wasn't going to rat them out. Um, and I said, well, you know, you're complaining that this teacher's super, super demanding and super, super pushy. I said, so am I. I said, so am I. You know that. And she said, the difference is, Birker, is you help us. And she didn't just say, you help me. She used the us term. And this was a kid that was a smart a smart student, uh, pretty representative, had a lot of friends in school. So when she used the us term that, you know, you do demand a lot of us, Birker. I know that you do, um, but you always help us. You help us get to the standard. I'm like, could you uh, say that a little louder? Could you put that like into a, uh, you know, into a, a statement and put it on the wall somewhere? Um, and I always just depended on the goodness of my kids uh, to protect me. And, you know, for 30 years they did, even though I had my enemies. Man, every one of my enemies eventually dropped like a fly, man. It just took some time. I didn't have to do it. I just had to outlast them, and I, and I did. And I could probably uh, think of like eight or nine individuals that were out to get me, either students or staff or whatever, parents, and they all self-destructed. I just had to wait them out because ultimately I had the support of the school. And uh, that's what got me uh, 30 years of success in my, in my profession. 
So I plead with you, if you like this podcast, you have to you have to express yourself. Don't let inertia take over. I am pleading with you to go on your platform and give it a rating. And if you think it sucks, tell me why it sucks. Don't tell me what I've already told you, that I talk a lot. Don't tell me that I put a lot of my personal life into that. I already know that. If this is not your thing, like a dish from a restaurant, you don't like a certain type of food, eat elsewhere. I've already told those those people. They still have a right to weigh in, but um, I don't know what you want. I've told you the truth from the start. I've tried to. But if you do like this style, uh, please, please, please take the time to speak up and let your voice be heard. Over and out.